0: Hebrews chapter 10 verses 11 to 14. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice, He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Hi everyone, welcome to our Sunday service online. Uh, It's great to have you join in again today. Well, I hope you're ready to get into God's Word because today we're going to finish uh, this short series on the Psalms uh, called Praying God's Promises. Uh, Remember, we've been looking at uh, some of the Psalms that uh, portray God's promise to us and we've been learning how to pray in line with them. Uh, and that way, that's, that's how we embrace God's promises into our lives and how our lives are formed uh, so that we live uh, in light of God's uh, precious promises to us. Uh, today we're going to look at Psalm 110 and uh, this, it's a quite a well-known psalm But it's probably not a psalm that we would look to uh, in the the same way that we would look to something like um, Psalm 23 or, uh, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. um, Or even last week we looked at Psalm 77, you know, a lament psalm. And in in many ways, psalms like that uh, are very easy to relate to because they describe uh, an experience that that we can easily relate to. Uh, They give us words to use in those experiences uh, so that we can draw near to God in whatever uh, situation we find ourselves in. Now, the reason I'm ending this series with Psalm 110, though, is because it contains two promises uh, that really are absolutely central to the Christian life, uh, more central than any other promise that you will actually find in the Psalms. And so, if you have a Bible, uh, please open up to Psalm 110. And uh, before we uh, read it, um, I'll pray. Let's come before God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. Uh, We know that all scripture is God-breathed. Every part is uh, ultimately authored by you. And so we pray, Father, that as we listen to your word now, that we would do so uh, with fear and trembling, because this is your word. We also pray, Father, that the preaching of your word Would be faithful and clear, uh, that we would all understand and know you better. We pray that the Holy Spirit uh, would use this part of your word, this psalm, to reshape our hearts, uh, that we would have uh, you in the rightful place in our lives uh, at the centre. Father, we pray that above all, that you would enable us to see the glory of your Son in this psalm, uh, that he would be uh, our King and Saviour, and that we would be changed as we see him as he really is. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hear the word of the Lord. Uh, Psalm 110. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of God. Psalm 110 is not your typical psalm. It reads more like a passage out of one of the prophets. In fact, this is prophecy, although the prophet in this case is King David. So you have a look at the heading. It's a Psalm of David. And this Psalm written by David is a record of two solemn announcements or promises uh, that God makes. So if you have a look at the Psalm, uh, you'll see that there's a promise in verse 1 and then there's a promise in verse 4. And all of the other material in this psalm are just comments or explanations on these promises. But they're promises spoken to a particular person about a special role that he will have in the world. And what I want us to see today is that these are the central promises of the Bible. Uh, These are the most important promises for our lives and for the future of the world. See, the hope for our lives and the hope for this world of ever been right again, of having a happy future, all depends on these two promises coming to pass. And so given how central these promises are, it shouldn't really surprise us to find that Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. In fact, it's actually the most referenced uh, Old Testament passage uh, in, the whole, in the New Testament. Uh, verses 1 and 4 These are the main verses that the writers of the New Testament drew from to prove that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And so this psalm teaches us three things about Jesus. It teaches us that he is a king who rules, that he is a king who is priest, and he is a king who wins. So let's look at those three things from this psalm. First, Jesus is a king who rules. Uh, that's promised in verse 1. Look at verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, in the context of this psalm, verse 1 is very surprising, even a bit confusing, uh, because David speaks about the Lord, you know, Yahweh, the covenant God, speaking to someone David calls my Lord. And if you think about that, David, he was the king in Israel. And so there was no one with higher authority or splendor than him other than God himself. But here he speaks about another person other than God and he calls this person my Lord. So who could he possibly be speaking about? If this was just one of David's descendants then David would have called him my son. Uh, It would actually read, the Lord says to my son. And yet David calls this person his Lord. Now, not only is that surprising, but the promise that God makes to David's Lord is just as impressive because God says to him, sit at my right hand. Now, in those days, the right hand of the king, which is what's been spoken of, uh, the right hand was symbolic of power and authority. Uh, It was the position of rule. Uh, It meant that this person had all the same authority and the same power as the king Uh, and everyone owed the same submission and allegiance and uh, honour to this person as they would the king. And so to be at the right hand of God himself, that meant to be in the position of rule over the entire earth where every single person owes this person the the respect of God himself. And so no wonder David calls him my Lord, because this person, this king, is on equal footing with God himself. And not only that, but verses 2 and 3 then unpack this promise by essentially grouping every single person into two groups, depending on how they relate to this king. Uh, They're either his enemies in verse 2, who are doomed to fail, or they are his willing servants, in verse 3, who gladly do whatever he asks. But in the end, that's the only distinction that will count. Uh, So clearly, this this figure, this king, uh, this this lord, uh, clearly he's far greater than David, far greater than Solomon, far greater than any king or any ruler who has ever lived before. Uh, This is a prediction of the great king the King of Kings. This is a prediction of the Messiah. Now, when Jesus came along in fulfillment of this psalm, he actually had to challenge the, uh, the, the um, conventional understanding of the Messiah because the Jews of his day, they thought of the Messiah as just this powerful human ruler who would come along and defeat the Roman Empire, whom they were subject to, and restore Israel to to an independent nation once again. But Jesus essentially showed them that their concept of a Messiah was not only way too small, but it fell completely short of all that the Scriptures were saying. And this challenge that Jesus put to them about the identity of the Messiah, it all came to a head on that occasion where he he gets his opponents to face the facts of Psalm 110. So let's have a look at Matthew's account in Matthew 22. Uh, This is where Jesus asks his opponents that question, whose son is the Christ? Whose son is the Messiah? And uh, his opponents uh, answer with the correct answer, they say, the son of David. Uh, In other words, they're saying he's a descendant of David. Um, But then Jesus, he, he pushes them and he says essentially, well, then why does Psalm 110 say that, uh, why does David call him Lord? You know, Jesus says, if, if David then calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Now, you need to understand that from the Jewish culture that Jesus was in at that time, because in that culture, the father was always greater than the son. And yet here is this conundrum, the Messiah is David's son, and yet the Messiah is David's Lord. Now, how does his opponents answer that? Well, they couldn't answer. They were completely stumped. Uh, there was, it was just silence. And that really forces us to then step up and, and say, well, what is the answer? Who is this? And the answer that Jesus is pushing us to recognise is that while he, the Messiah, is a a human king in the line of David, he's much more than a human king. See, he is the Lord. He's distinct from the Father because in the psalm it's the Father speaking to him, God the Father saying, sit at my right hand. So he's distinct from the Father and yet he's one with the Father. He is the Lord. He is equal in being, power and authority. And that's what Psalm 110 was saying all along. But it, just, it wasn't until the incarnation that its full meaning was finally revealed, that the Messiah is in fact God in the flesh. That's why the book of Hebrews opens with this incredible description of the deity of Jesus. And in making his case, the writer of Hebrews compares Jesus and contrasts him to angels who the Jewish readers understood as very powerful beings. Uh, But the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? But the event that really clinched this for so many back then, and still for so many today, is of course the resurrection. And that's why when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, uh, it's in Acts 2, before this huge crowd where 3,000 people, uh, Jewish people were converted, the climactic point of his sermon was Psalm 110 verse 1. And Peter says, See, since Jesus has risen from the dead and ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, that proves that he is both Lord and Messiah. Okay, what does all this mean for us then? You know, we're not that used to thinking in in these sort of categories, you know, kings, rule, uh, right hand. So what does all of this mean for us? Well, it means for us that even though we might not necessarily think in these categories, we still have to come to terms with the fact that Jesus is the king overall. He is the king in which every single one of us must surrender our lives to. Now, Jesus, he's not just some... A uh, little king, you know, he's not a tribal king. It's not like you know, over here is Jesus' little domain called the church, and over here is the Muslim domain, and over here is the uh, Hindu domain, and over here is the secular domain. There's none of that. It's just Jesus rules over all. He is the Lord over all. Everyone, though they might refuse to acknowledge it, doesn't change the reality that he is king over all. Everyone must acknowledge him as Lord. This also tells us that Jesus is not just one of many ways to God. He is God. He is God the Son. And he is the only way to the Father. No one can come to the Father except through him. But if we come to him, we must come to him as he actually is, as our Lord, as our King. And that means we must stop living our lives as if we were king of our own lives, as if we can decide what is right and wrong for ourselves. We must acknowledge and embrace Jesus, the king of kings, as our king. We must place our lives under his rule. Because in the end, as this psalm tells us, there's only two groups of people as far as God is concerned. There are those who are enemies of Christ and there are those who are willing servants of Christ. There's no third option You're either bowing your knee in humble submission to Jesus the Lord or you're shaking your fist against him in rebellion. But there's no other option. They're the only groups. And I know this is very unpopular to say today, but that's what you would expect if this psalm is true. You know, if if those who haven't submitted to Christ are his enemies, then you'd expect that they don't like what this psalm is saying they don't like the idea that jesus is the only way that jesus is the king but that's that's how it is and so eventually the issue that everyone will have to face is what did you do with jesus the lord did you continue to reject him or did you bow in humble submission to him because jesus is the king who rules that's the first point that's the first promise he's a king who rules Uh, Second, the second promise, though, is that this king, King Jesus, is also a priest. And that's in verse 4. So have a look at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, in some ways, this promise is just as surprising and even confusing as the one in verse 1. Because. Kings and priests in David's day were two very different offices. Uh, They're two different roles in the nation. See, priests came from the tribe of Levi. uh, Kings came from the tribe of Judah. And uh, those two roles, they they weren't interchangeable. Uh, The law stated that only Levites could function as priests. And not only that, but the role of the king and the role of the priest was almost like two different roles going in two very different directions. Uh, the, the king, he stood as God's representative in the nation. So he represented God's rule before the people. The priest, however, was almost the complete opposite. The priest represented the people before God. You know, He stood and spoke on their behalf uh, before God. And so in that system, you couldn't have a priest who was also a king. But verse 4 is saying that this priest the Messiah, who is also a priest, uh, he is a priest of an entirely different order to that Levitical system uh, from David's day. The promise is, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, what does that mean? What is a Melchizedek? Well, Melchizedek, uh, he's this very mysterious figure who pops up for three verses in Genesis chapter 14. Uh, it's in the time of Abraham. So this is like way back, way before Israel was a nation. And what do we know about Melchizedek? Well, we know basically three things. We know that his name means uh, king of righteousness. Uh, we know that he was, a, we're told he's the king of a place called Salem. And we're also told that he was priest of God Most High. And that's it. He just turns up. Uh, Abraham um, gives him a tenth, uh, he blesses Abraham and then he disappears and we never hear any more about him. And he would remain a massive mystery except for the fact that a thousand years later, God gets David to record uh, this solemn pledge that shows us that Melchizedek, that all along he was a type, he was a pattern. know, he was a real person, but he, was, he stood as a pattern of the Messiah to come, who would be both king and priest forever. Now, if that's still all confusing to us, well, the writer of Hebrews comes to our rescue because he writes a whole chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 7. It's, it's really a sermon on the meaning of Psalm 110, verse 4, and particularly on Melchizedek. Uh, so, if you want to know about Melchizedek, you've got to read carefully through Hebrews chapter 7. But the, the point of the argument. Uh, that the writer of Hebrews makes is that in the nation of Israel, with the Levitical priesthood, that priesthood could never actually make the people finally right with God. It was only ever pointing them to what they needed. What we actually need to be made right with God, we need a priest like Melchizedek. But we need someone whose name doesn't just mean King of Righteousness, we actually need the King of Righteousness one who really is righteous. And we need a king who truly does live forever. And that, of course, is Jesus, as his resurrection guarantees. And so the point of Psalm 110 verse 4, as the writer of Hebrews sums it up, is this. Have a look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24 to 25. It says, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood, Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Now, this is all very fascinating, but what does it actually mean? What does it mean that Jesus is a king who is priest? Well, here's what it means. It means that we have a saviour who is not only a king who conquers his enemies, but we have a saviour who is a priest who has come to save his enemies. I mean, essentially, that's what a priest is ultimately about that the, the, ultimately the priest's role is to reconcile both God and sinners to turn enemies into friends so if Jesus was just a king then there's a sense in which all of us need to live in terror because we have all rebelled against him we haven't lived under his rule as we should you know just think about this past week there have been times where where all of us have done something against his rule, where we have rebelled against him, where we have gone our own way. And see, if Jesus is just a king, then we're all in big trouble because he is a king who is coming to judge rebels. But here's the good news. Jesus is a king who is also a priest. And as a priest, he has come not to judge rebels, but to turn rebels into friends. Uh, As Hebrew says, to save completely those who come to God through him. Uh, Hebrew says as a priest, he always lives to intercede for us. And what that means is that he stands between us and God, the Father. And he says to the Father, accept them because of my work for them. Accept them because I have offered up a sacrifice to take away their sin. I've offered up myself on the cross. And on that basis, you know, through faith in what Jesus has done, on that basis, we are accepted because of his priestly work. And see, it's these two roles of Jesus, that he is a king and a priest, these are absolutely central to the Christian faith. You know, This is what the gospel is all about, that Jesus is Lord and Saviour, that he is king and priest. As king, he rules and defends his people, As priest, he has offered the one sacrifice to atone for our sin. And that's why the Christian life is one of both assurance and obedience. It's a life of assurance because Christ is our priest and he has done everything necessary to make us right with God. That means we can have assurance of salvation. We can have assurance of eternal life. We can have assurance of the forgiveness of sins. It doesn't matter how bad our sin is. If we know by faith that Jesus forever lives to intercede for us, then we know that God no longer holds our sin against us, that we are truly forgiven and therefore we can have assurance. Um, But the Christian life is also a life of obedience because Christ is our King. And see, his rule is just. His law is the law of perfect freedom. And therefore it is good, it is a joy to live under the rule of Christ because he is a good king. And see, when we know that our obedience actually adds nothing to our salvation, our obedience adds nothing to our standing with God because that's based on the work of Christ as priest. When we know that, that doesn't detract from our obedience. Rather, it actually empowers it because now we realize how much Christ has done to save us. That's what empowers obedience. And do you see, that's what actually turns us into willing servants. Remember verse 3, the willing servants. How do you become a willing servant? By knowing that Christ has died for you. That's what empowers you to serve him. The willing servants are those who have been changed by the gospel. And do you realize, you know, when we're talking about assurance, there is no greater assurance that you can have than knowing that the king who rules over all is the very same one who lives forever to intercede for you you know to plead for you in heaven there's no greater assurance than that this is the wonderful news that the king the messiah Jesus he's also a priest and so we have a king who rules we have a king who is priest finally we see in this psalm a king who wins and that's in verses 5 to 7 uh, let's read those verses the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, this scene might seem a long way removed from our day, you know, with battles and corpses everywhere. Our nations, chiefs shattered all of this stuff. I mean, this it doesn't really seem like something that we would find today. Um, but what all of this is, it's all depicting a final battle. It's a battle where judgment comes upon the nations, and the point of this battle is that it's a judgment where victory is absolutely guaranteed. Notice what the last line is. Therefore, he will lift up his head. That is a sign of victory. This is a victory that's guaranteed that all of the enemies of Christ will finally be judged and condemned. And in, in one sense, this promise has actually already been fulfilled. It's already happened. Uh, it happened with the first coming of Christ, because when he came the first time, he died on the cross to pay for sin, to destroy evil and to overcome death which he did in his resurrection. And so the fact that Jesus has come, he has died, he has risen, he has already ascended into heaven, he's already seated at the right hand of God, he rules over all now, that means this promise has already been fulfilled. And yet there's a sense in which this promise still awaits a final fulfillment, a future fulfillment, And uh, this really comes across clearly in uh, the book of Hebrews again. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 to 13. It sums it up by saying that when Jesus had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So what is he doing right now? He's waiting for the final victory the final defeat of all his enemies. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verse 25, it says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So that is a victory that is guaranteed. This is saying that Jesus wins, that he will win. He will triumph over his enemies. He will destroy all evil. He will return the world to the home of righteousness where where there is no more suffering and pain, no more death, no more evil. It will truly be the home of righteousness. And that promise still stands. The promise of Psalm 110, it's still in effect. And that's why I said at the start that this psalm contains the central promise of the Bible. Uh, This is what the Bible is all about. It is all about Jesus. It's about Jesus wins. And so how should we respond then? How should we respond to this psalm? Let's just end with three things. First of all, you should be warned. You should be warned because if you are persisting to live your life as though Jesus was was not king, as if you were ruler of your own life, if you continue to persist in that, then you're actually in for a big shock one day because you can't avoid Jesus forever. Uh, You're either his enemy or you're his friend and this psalm doesn't pull any punches it just tells us plainly that if you remain his enemy then you will face his wrath at the end and that's a wrath that's eternal and so this psalm is a warning it is telling you to turn turn from your rebellion and return to the king the true king to jesus but second there's something for those who are trusting in christ here and for you this psalm says be assured be assured. Uh, Colossians 3 tells us that your life, if you're in Christ, your life is now hidden in Christ. And it says that your life is hidden in Christ where he is seated at God's right hand. And that's the place of ultimate security. You know, nothing finally can hurt you. Uh, Colossians 3, it goes on to say, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Do you know that saying? That's saying that your future is completely tied up with Christ's future. What will happen to him is what will happen to you. His victory is your victory. Do you see that? His future is your future if you are in Christ, and therefore you can be completely assured that you are forever safe. And that leads to a third thing. You should be confident. You should be confident because. The future is certain. History is not some random mess going nowhere. It is under the control of the king. That's what it means that Jesus is at God's right hand. He is ruling. Everything is under his control. Your life is under his control. The world is under his control. History has a, a, a script. It has an end goal. It has a deadline. It has a judgment day. And therefore, you don't have to live your life in worry. You don't have to worry about the future. You don't have to live by the latest conspiracy theory. What you can do is trust. Trust in the rule of Jesus. Know that he is the sovereign king who is directing all things according to the purpose of the Lord. It says he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. See, the only reason Jesus delays in coming again Is to give time for people to repent. But he is coming. And so in the meantime, spend your energy serving him. You know, you've been made a willing servant um, through his priestly work. And so live for him. Live for him. In in fact, let's make this promise of Christ's return and of his final victory. Let's make that central in our lives. Remember, we're we're learning how to pray God's promises. Well, here's the promise that we need to put in its rightful place right at the centre of our lives. This is what should shape the way we live and think and hope and dream. This is what should shape our prayers, that Christ is coming and that he will win, that he is the king to whom everyone must bow the knee. So let's make this prayer central, like Jesus taught us. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, let's pray. Oh, Father, we praise you for the wonderful King and Saviour that we have in Jesus. We praise you for the gracious gift of salvation, that through Jesus offering himself on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin, that we can be reconciled to you. And we thank you for the confidence that we have for the future, that all evil will be destroyed, that Christ is coming again. And we know for all those who trust in you that his coming will mean our victory, a victory that is eternal. And yet, Lord, we realize that even though we have this great hope, uh, even though we have been reconciled and we are under Christ's wonderful rule, we acknowledge that we still go our own way, that uh, the sin in our hearts is still there. Uh, But Lord, we realize that there have been times even this week where we have gone against your law, times when we have given over to the desires of of the rebellious nature and have sinned against you. And Lord, we we admit that we even affirm with our lips that Christ does rule over us. And yet we quickly grumble when when he sends a trial to refine us. Uh, We quickly give in to temptation when we feel overwhelmed, when we feel that we're all alone. Uh, We forget your great and precious promises. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would forgive us for turning away from you. But we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the priest we need. That you are the one who lives forever, who intercedes for us. And we know that even now, as we ask for your forgiveness, we know that you are there before the Father, interceding on our behalf. We know that our prayer has been heard and that we won't be turned away, but that you answer our prayer and you will forgive us. And we thank you that that's all certain because of your death for us. Oh Lord, help us to trust in you. Uh, even in the turmoil of this uh, COVID pandemic, it's it's so easy to buy into the, pandi- uh, the panic that that makes everything feel like it's out of control. And yet when we lift our eyes beyond the here and now and we see you enthroned at your Father's right hand, we see you as the eternal King who has conquered the very cause of all this suffering. You have risen from the dead. You are the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And we know that, Uh, You are coming again where this this world will be restored forever, that there will be no more viruses or no more suffering then. Help us to wait patiently. Help us to serve you willingly in the meantime. Um, Lord, we pray especially today for those who are troubled and distressed, for those who are grieving. Uh, We pray for those who are hurting, that they would be comforted by your promises. Uh, We pray that uh, for those who are in positions of leadership, who have to make hard decisions that you would give them the wisdom they need. Be with our Prime Minister, be with our Premier, give them strength to do their job well. And we pray all of this in the name of our great King and Saviour, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, let's close uh, the service with a reading from Revelation chapter 22. Uh, In Revelation 22 verse 12, uh, we hear, Uh, The Lord Jesus saying, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then John adds, uh, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.